All right. Good morning. Glad you guys are here. Welcome to part two of this series we are calling Flossum. If you were here last week or you watched online, you know that the entire premise for this series came out of Hebrews chapters 11 and 12, where the author gives us what theologians call this hall of fame of faith. And, and the author lists all these great characters and names within the Bible. And my hope for us all is that maybe we can find some strength for our lives and some support system from those who came before us. My hope is that because we're surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses that maybe we can find encouragement uh, to go through and get through whatever it is happening within our lives. My hope is that you can realize wherever you're at in life, you're not alone. Look at your neighbor and say, you're not alone. You are not alone. Somebody has been where you are. But what's interesting about these passages in Hebrews is I can, I can see why the author brings up guys like Moses. Moses is weak. He's got a stuttering problem, a speech impediment. He's insecure. He says, don't send me. Send my brother, Aaron. Send, send him. Like he's better than, than I am. So Moses is weak. God makes him strong. I can see why the author brings up David, the shepherd boy who nobody cared enough about to even bring him into the house when the prophet came to anoint a king, yet God makes him strong. He becomes uh, perhaps the greatest king ever. And I can see why the author brings up a judge named Gideon. Gideon was a wimp. He was hiding from the Midianites. And God says, you're not a wimp, you're a warrior. So I can see how awesome God is because sometimes God will contradict how you see yourself so that you can fulfill your calling. Furthermore, I can see how within this hall of faith it includes a guy like Jephthah who unless you get paid to read the Bible, you probably don't know who Jephthah is, and that's okay. But he was the son of a prostitute. The Bible names the town of Gilead as his dad, which, which means nobody knew his dad. That shows you how much his mom got around. And the Bible says he was surrounded by worthless fellows which is what would happen in an upbringing like that. Yet God raises up Jephthah, makes him great. So I get all that. Flossum, flawed people, awesome God. The common theme throughout is the weak are made strong. But then you get to this brother, Samson. Samson's listed in Hebrews chapter 11. I don't know why the author brings up Samson. Samson is altogether different. Samson is strong from the beginning. But he put his power in his preference instead of his purpose, and it eventually made him weak. You ever know that person who just had great potential, but in the end they were pitiful? I was a coach for nine years. I saw it all the time. People with great talent, unbelievable in whatever sport they're in, great potential, but they had no drive. And in the end, they were very weak because of it. Nonetheless, we have Samson, and I don't get it, but I didn't write the Bible. So as I was preparing this series and exploring different characters, there was just so much that I think we can learn from this man's life that he had to be included. In fact, I was having a hard time narrowing everything down that I wanted to say to you about Samson because there's probably nobody who parallels within the Bible our lives as much as Samson does. So if you brought a Bible, I hope you did. Go ahead and grab it or uh, turn it on. 
if that's your story, flip to Judges chapter 13. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, Joshua, Judges is how that's going to go. You want the big number 13? We'll put the passages here on screen for the lazy people. Kidding, okay? Nobody thought that was funny. That's all right. While you're getting there, let me kind of catch you up on what's been going on within the Bible. In the very beginning, the first book, Genesis, God promises a guy named Abraham that his descendants are going to become as numerous as the sands on a seashore. And sometime later, you get to a, a guy named Joseph who's, who's working in Egypt, and God's promise has come true. The Israelites, as they're called, are very numerous, numbering probably in the millions. This freaks out the Egyptians, so they enslave the Israelites and make them laborers and who knows what else for 400 years. Let that sink in. This country is not even 300 years old, and the Israelites were slaves for 400 years, yet Moses comes in and and rescues them out of slavery. You've probably seen the movie. They cross the Red Sea. They're on the edge of this great land that God has promised, but they're disobedient to the laws that God has given them. And so as punishment, they uh, have to wander the desert for 40 years. Joshua, Moses' successor, eventually leads them into the promised land. And because of God's leading and Joshua's military prowess, the people are safe. But Joshua dies. The people feel unsafe, which is why in the opening line, the book of Judges is, who's going to fight for us now? Except the people, the Israelites, were supposed to view God as their king and their protector. But people then are like people now. They don't like to be told what to do, so they don't keep the law or trust in God. And the cycle that you will see if you read your Bible is disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Over and over, disobedience, disaster, deliverance. Which the deliverance in this book primarily comes in the form of judges. Hence, the name of the book, Judges. But there are roughly 12 judges who help the people during this 300 years that they're in this promised land before Saul and David, who we learned about last week, become kings. Samson is one of those judges. Are you still with me? All right, here we go. Let's go. Judges chapter 13. It says, And the people of Israel again did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord gave them into the hands of the Philistines for 40 years. There's our cycle. Disobedience. They did what was evil. Disaster. The Lord gives them into the hands of the Philistines. That's disastrous because the Philistines are not good people. In fact, they're really bad. Here's what you should know about the Philistines. First, they were extremely sophisticated. Their weaponry, architecture, and culture were far beyond any other civilization at the time. They were the first ones to work with iron and make iron weapons. They were the first ones to employ battle formations in war. They were building multi-story buildings and bridges when the Israelites were out in their fields with the sheep doing who knows what. Second, they were really depraved. They had built their entire civilization on piracy and conquest. They were in every way a militarized society. Their parties were epic and known for their debauchery. They pioneered this thing called the Mizta, which is a word that literally translates a week-long drinking feast. You thought fraternities invented that? It's not true. The Philistines did that. They were also really big into pork. They filled Israel's countryside with pigs, which were considered an unclean animal. And finally, ancient ancient literature shows us that they were unspeakably cruel. 
When they would do this piracy, they would come in and capture a town. They would remove the genitalia from the males, and only then would they impale them on a a stake so that they could slowly sink down to their death. I heard a pastor once say, buccaneering, beer, bacon, and barbarism. That's the Philistines. So here, they're ruling a nation of Israel. Very cruel people. Verse 2. There was a certain man of Zorah of the tribe of the Danites whose name was Manoah, and his wife was barren and had no children. And the angel of the Lord appeared to the woman and said, Behold, you are barren and have no children. Thank you, angel. We got that. But you, you shall conceive and bear a son. Therefore, be careful and drink no wine or strong drink and eat nothing unclean. For behold, you will conceive and bear a son. Now listen. If this woman was living the way she was supposed to be living, the angel wouldn't have had to bring up the fact that she shouldn't be drinking wine or eating unclean food. The angel of the Lord appears to a number of other women and tells them that they are too going to have sons, but he never had to tell them, hey, don't eat pork, don't drink wine, because they weren't. Except he had to tell Samson's mom that, which should give you a little bit of an insight to what kind of upbringing Samson was going to come up in. The angel continues, No razor shall come upon his head, for the child shall be a Nazarite to God from the womb. You can read all about what a Nazarite is in Numbers chapter 6, but essentially the vow was that you can't drink alcohol, you can't touch anything dead, and you can't cut your hair. That's what it meant to be a Nazarite. And oftentimes people would take this vow for only 30 or 60 days, maybe at the most a year, and they did it so that they could hear from God. Yet Samson is supposed to be a Nazarite from the womb onward. But now watch this, because this might be the most important verse in the whole Samson story. The angel of God says, and he shall begin to save Israel from the hand of the Philistines. He shall begin to save Israel, as if to imply somebody else is going to have to finish it. Have you ever thought about that? Samson is the last person within this book of Judges, the last judge named. So if he begins to save the people, who's going to finish saving the people? We'll come back to that. But the angel tells the woman that she's what she's supposed to do. So she tells her husband. Her husband says, listen, lady, you're old. We haven't had kids up until this point. I'm going to need like some confirmation on this whole thing. Let's pray and ask the angel to come back and tell us exactly what he just told you. The Bible says God listens to his prayer. The angel of the Lord shows back up. Manoah starts to question the angel like, what are we supposed to be doing? How are we supposed to raise this kid? Which I can appreciate that. I mean, there are some things that it would be nice to have some answers on, all right? I read that book, What to Expect When You're Expecting. I'm just telling you, I wasn't expecting some of the things that I saw. Okay? Uh, The the book was not accurate. There are some things that you just have to experience. Childbirth is the horror movie that you have to live through in in life. And so, but it'd be nice to get some, uh, some answers. So I understand what Manoah was after. He wanted some answers. He wanted some details. Check this out. And Manoah said, now, when your words come true... What is to be this child's manner of life? What is his mission? And the angel of the Lord said to Manoah, 
of all that I said to the woman, let her be careful. She may not eat of anything that comes from the vine, neither let her drink wine or strong drink or eat any unclean thing. All that I commanded her, let her observe. Now notice that the angel didn't answer Manoah's question. Manoah's wanting some details, and he says, make sure the woman does what I said, which the lesson for us in this is monumental. Many of us, like Manoah, insist on detailed explanations. God, why did this happen? Why did that happen? What in the world is this supposed to show me? Why is the world like it is? God, what is my future? And before you can trust God or feel at peace, you want details from Him. Why? Because we want to see if God's plan is trustworthy and good. Like in our own minds, we want to know if God is really looking out for us. Yet God almost never gives us those details. More often than not, God says, you don't need to know the details. You need to know me. Jot that down if you're taking notes. The first lesson we learn from Samson actually comes from his dad, and that is you don't need to know the details of your life. You need to know God. So Manoah does what we all do. He questions the angel of the Lord. It's when it's why when Manoah asks the angel his name, God says, why do you need to ask me my name when you can see that I'm wonderful? That word can also translate that I'm divine. He's saying you don't need to know my name when you can simply see that I'm good. I'm divine. You can trust me by looking at me. I think sometimes we just need to remind ourselves of who God is. We need to remind ourselves that we don't need the details because we can trust God. I'll give you an example of this because the Bible says that God makes himself known through all creation. We just had this spectacular solar eclipse. I don't know how your mind works, but I needed some answers on how all that stuff happened. Started researching a little bit about the sun. I found out the sun consumes 600 million tons of hydrogen per second, which, follow me, generates enough energy in one second to supply all the U.S. energy needs for 13 billion years in one second. And listen, God spoke that into existence. He said, let there be light. And there was light. He wasn't convening councils. He wasn't thinking about how can I make all of this happen? He spoke it into existence. So here's my question. Am I really in a place to question the ways of such a God? Or should I simply say, I believe what you have promised. I'll do whatever you say. Listen, there is only one response that pleases God. It's yes, Lord. Yes, Lord. It's faith. It's surrender. See, religion is the great counterfeit to true faith and surrender. And busyness within religion keeps a lot of people deceived into thinking they're right with God when they are not. Oh, I go to church, pastor. I'd give a little bit. I, I try to serve. I don't break the commandments, at least all of them. But, but you've either said yes to Jesus. I believe who you are. I believe in what you've said. I believe that you have done everything necessary to save me and accept me, and I'm ready to follow you with my whole life, or you haven't. You're either surrendered or not. Which are you? Let's keep going. 
In verse 24, the woman gives birth as promised by God, and then things start to get a little crazy within Samson's life. Chapter 14, Samson went down to Timnah, where he shouldn't have been. That's a Philistine town. And at Timnah, he saw one of the daughters of the Philistines. Then he came up and told his father and mother, I saw one of the daughters of the Philistines at Timnah. Now get her for me as my wife. But his father and mother said to him, Is there not a woman among the daughters of your relatives? Apparently, this was southern Israel, right? You know what I'm saying? Like Tennessee Israel or whatever that goes. Or among, that's wrong. I shouldn't have said that. Or among all of the people that you must go to take a wife from the Philistines. But Samson said to his father, get her for me, for she is right in my eyes. Now, if I had to boil down all of Samson's weaknesses into one statement, this would be it. Samson's primary driver in life is to do what pleases him. He's not going to let anybody get in the way of what he wants. He's always going to follow his heart and be true to himself. And the good news, or maybe the bad news, in this story for us, unlike the Disney movie, this story actually shows you how that way of living will ultimately lead. Verse 4. His father and mother did not know that this was from the Lord, for he, God, was seeking an opportunity against the Philistines. At that time, they were ruling over Israel. Now, what does that mean? Does that mean that God wanted Samson to marry this Philistine, despite the fact that he'd called it sinful when he gave the law? Does it mean that Samson's decision was wise and righteous? No. It just means that God was going to use this for his purposes. Let me step back a second and help you see the bigger picture of what's going on in Israel. Israel has grown really comfortable in their captivity. They're not crying out for deliverance, which they had done before with the previous judges. In fact, they don't want to be delivered at all. Because of that, this is the greatest threat they have ever faced. Elimination, not by extermination, but assimilation. This is always the greatest threat to the people of God. You see, when the enemy comes against us, God's people, uh, to exterminate them, we usually rally ourselves together. We put our faith back into God, and He acts on our behalf. But sometimes our enemy makes us comfortable in the world. He entices our heart away from God, which is where Israel is. Might I contend that maybe it's where America is? Is. So what, what God needs to do within this people of Israel, He needs to stir up some conflict. Enter Samson, a hot-blooded, testosterone-ridden, impulsive, roid-raging, WWE-looking Samson. Now, before I move on from this, do you see how God sometimes does this in your life? Your heart gets way too comfortable in this world. You get too enticed by popularity or comfort or money. And so God stirs up some trouble. This is what God does for you. In an effort to rescue you, He has to discipline you. Sometimes that trouble isn't to harm you. It's to help you. But back to Samson. He decides he needs to marry this girl on his way to let her know that she needed to marry him. A lion attacks him. Verse 5, And behold, a young lion came toward him, roaring. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and although he had nothing in his hand, he tore the lion in pieces as one tears a young goat. Now, questions 
Okay. How does one tear a young goat? Like, is that just common back then? Hey, I'm going to go shoot some hoops. Oh, I'm going to go tear up a young goat. Oh, cool, man. Yeah. What? I mean, what? So I don't know. But whatever the case may be, Samson rips up the lion as one tears a young goat. A lion. Okay. Which, I don't know about you, but if I get attacked by a lion on my way to meet a girl, I'm going to rethink the girl. Like, like, is this a sign? I mean, is this, I mean, is it saying something to me here? So I've decided as a pastor in any premarital counseling do I do from this point forward. My first question, bro, have you been attacked by a lion recently? <laughs> if he says no, then it's, okay, cool. Yeah, let's move forward with the, if it's yes, I'm going to say, well, we need to step back, back from this. Anyway. Samson kills the lion. He talks to the girl. They work out some sort of agreement to get married. A few days later, he's on his way to the wedding. He sees the dead lion on the side of the road. There's a beehive in it with honey coming out. Again, questions, okay, is why are the bees in a dead lion? Is that where they prefer to nest? Like, have we been getting this wrong this whole time? Uh, if I get bees at my house, should I have some carcasses laying around that they should, can put a hive? Maybe the lion ate the bees, which would explain why he was so mad he attacked Samson. I don't know. But whatever the reason, Samson, in a direct act of disobedience to his Nazarite vows, which said he can't touch anything dead, he touches the dead lion, he eats some of the honey. In his next act of defiance, he proceeds with the wedding. And then in another act of disobedience toward God, he throws himself a Mizpah, which you might recall was the week-long keg party. Now, the Bible tells us that there are 30 Philistine guys at this party. And Samson, being the arrogant person he is, say, hey, if you can solve my riddle, I'll get you each a pair of clothes. But if you can't solve it within a week... You've got to get me 30 pairs of clothes. Well, these dudes are equally arrogant like most men are. They're not going to uh, let somebody shame them. So they say, deal. Verse 14. Here's Samson's riddle. Out of the eater came something to eat. Out of the strong came something sweet. Obviously, he's talking about the lion, but nobody knows that. Now, the Philistine guys, they're not dumb, so pretty quick, like, they go to Samson's wife and say, hey, you need to tell us the answer to this riddle. Seduce Samson, do whatever you got to do, but figure it out, or we're going to kill you and your dad. And in a classic girl move, Samson's wife cries for a week straight. She says, you don't love me. You're starting our marriage out with secrets. And so he eventually caves. I mean, he can't stand the crying. No, I can. So he tells her, well, shortly before the Philistines week to solve this riddle is up, they come to Samson with the answer. Now, Samson's no fool. He knows he's been tricked by his wife. Verse 18. If you had not plowed with my heifer, you would not have found out the answer to my word. What a way with words that Samson had. Guys, might I speak directly to you? First of all, don't let anybody plow with your heifer. Okay, that's, that's rule one. Rule two, maybe don't, maybe don't call your wife a heifer. Okay, that's just some free advice moving forward. But... Samson is now on the hook 
for 30 pairs of clothes. So instead of going to Old Navy or Coles, he goes to another town. He kills 30 Philistines, brings back their clothes to the guys. Well, the guys find out that this uh, was, when he gets there, his wife, she's been given to another man. It took him a while to kill his brother or something. So he's more upset about that. So he catches 300 foxes. He ties their tails together. He puts a torch in the tails. He lights the torch, releases the foxes into the grain and cornfields, burns up their entire uh, uh, fields. Sweet, practical joke. The Philistines, though, don't, they don't find it funny. So they take the girl and her dad. They burn them a lot. This is true. Y'all need to read your Bible. I'm telling you, this is all in here. Samson's not happy about that, so he kills the guys who were responsible for killing his former wife and her dad. Then he heads into a cave. Now, the Philistines hear about all this carnage. They're really upset now, so they send a thousand soldiers to come and get Samson. Well, they show up at the cave. 3,000 Israelites come because they think they're about to get attacked. So 3,000 Israelites come out and say, hey, what's, what's the deal? And they say, hey, we don't want any trouble. We just want Samson. And they say, all right, we'll go get him for you. It says, do you not know, the, the Israelites show up to Samson, do you not know that the Philistines are rulers over us? And then is this that you have, what then is this that you have done to us? And he said to them, as they did to me, so I've done it to them. Now, can you see how morally and spiritually weak Samson is? They did it to me, so I did it to them. It's like how my four and six-year-olds fight. He did it first. Well, Samson can't even rise above the behavior of these pagan Philistines. Yet he's supposed to be a mouthpiece for God. Furthermore, look how weak the Israelites are. They're cool with remaining in captivity. They're so spiritually lost that they can't even see God is trying to use Samson to save them. Now watch how God works through all this. Samson asked the Israelites, hey, are you all going to kill me? They said, no, we're just going to tie you up and we're going to give you over to the Philistines. And he's like, all right, right on. Verse 14. When he came to Lehi, the Philistines came shouting to meet him. Then the Spirit of the Lord rushed upon him, and the ropes that were on his arms became his flax that has caught fire. And his bonds melted off his hands, and he found a fresh jawbone of a donkey and put out his hand and took it. And with it, he struck down a thousand men. Samson said, with the jawbone of a donkey, heaps upon heaps, with the jawbone of a donkey, I've struck down a thousand men. Now, how cool is that? With the jawbone of a donkey still in his hands, Samson composes a song. Now, we don't get the full extent of it because it didn't rhyme in English, but it it rhymed in in Hebrew. So I think you have to read it more like an Eminem rap. So he'd say something like, like with the jawbone of an ass, I put them in a mass with a jawbone of an ass. I had a blast. Like, like this is what Sam, I'm freestyling up here. This is what Samson said. This is all true. Verse 17. As soon as he finished speaking, he threw down the jawbone out of his hand. And that place was called Ramoth Lehi. This is the first recorded mic drop that we have in scripture. Like, I mean, Samson says, not my God. Here's the question. 
that you need to be asking yourself within this story. First of all, why would God fill Samson with a spirit to do something so petty and vindictive? Right? He just gave Samson the power to kill a thousand men. I don't know how many fights you've seen, but a thousand to one, they're not good odds. Unless... You have God on your side. Then it's good odds. So why did God help Samson? Because he has a bigger purpose. And even though it's sinful, God allows it. God always moves and works in ways to fulfill his purpose. And he can use bad things to accomplish his good purposes. Now, chapter 16, Samson's debauchery gets even lower despite the fact that he's murdered people, he's touched dead things, he's drank, he's whined. You know, I mean, he's, he's done all these things. The second lesson we need to learn, sin always escalates. Sin always escalates like a slow drip. It gets deeper and deeper. And in our story, you can watch as Samson falls deeper and deeper into sin. What you'll read next is that he goes to Gaza, which happens to be the capital city of the Philistines. So before he was just on the border, you can see him getting deeper and deeper in, and he finds himself a prostitute. The Bible records what they do together. I don't think I need to repeat that. Eventually, he meets a gal named Delilah. You've probably heard of her. You've heard the song. She's in New York City. What have you done to me? Anyway, some of you are with me. Might be an old song. Well, nonetheless, the story goes that they give, the Philistines give her $90,000. They tell her, seduce Samson into telling you the secret of his strength. I don't think I need to read the story to you, but she tries multiple times to find out. Each time, Samson lies to her, but he gets closer and closer to telling her the truth. He finally says, if you cut my hair... I'll be as weak as any other man. So she hires the barber. They cut his hair. Next thing you know, he is weak. The Philistines burn out his eyes and make him their prisoner. They put him in the jail and make him grind and all kinds of other stuff. But for the first time in the story, Samson prays to God. He repents of his sin. And God does one last miracle by letting letting him push down the temple of Dagon and kill all the rulers within the temple, including himself. Now, I'm not going to read the story because I know that, that the first thing that you are going to think when you read it is, nobody's that stupid, Pastor. There's no way that can apply to me. You said Samson's life was most like mine, and I'm just telling you, I ain't that dumb. I'm, gonna let, I'm not going to let some woman seduce me over and over and over. Bull butter. Every guy in here is that dumb. And I'm just telling you the truth because I've seen it happen over and over and over. The betrayal, the, the, the affair, somebody gets killed. Like, this is not new. This has been happening since the beginning of the world. Seduction is a powerful, powerful weapon. But that's not where I'm going with the story, so that's why I didn't share it with you, really, because we're focusing on Samson's flaws. His biggest flaw was his pride. Think about it. He broke his Nazarite vow multiple times. He touched the dead lion. He touched the dead donkey. He, he, nothing happened to him, though. When he did those things, he was still 
strong. He threw himself a week-long beer party. Again, nothing happened. He was promiscuous. Nothing happened. So by the time we get to Delilah, he's just figuring, I got this. Nothing has happened to me up until this point. If she cuts my hair, I mean, I broke all the other vows. If she cuts my hair, I'm going to still be strong. Nothing can happen then. Here's how I want you to write down the lesson. You can't be too weak. You can only be too proud. You can't be too weak. You can only be too proud. In other words, your life is never going to get any better until you realize that you are weak. You don't have this. God needs to help you and work on your behalf. I'd encourage you to read this whole story of Samson, all four chapters, and compare how often Samson uses the word I or me and compare that to the one time that he repents to God. You'll be surprised. So let me ask you a probing question. Think back on the major decisions you've made in life, whether that be a job or marriage, or what to major in, or who to date, or what to buy. Now, figure out which weighed more heavily on that decision. Is this what pleases me, or is this what pleases God? If it's the former, might I submit to you, your pride is probably leading you down a dangerous path. And as Samson shows us, that path only gets darker the deeper you go. Sin never starts off with the big things. It's always the trivial things. And when nothing happens, you go to the next big thing. And when nothing happens, then you go to the next big thing. It's a sacrifice here, a sacrifice there. Before you know it, you're somewhere you thought you would never be. And it's the scariest truth within all of Scripture that God will let you go after the things that you desire and chase these things within your heart. And even though it displeases him, he says, have at it. It's a terrifying, terrifying idea. But this morning I'm going to land the plane like this. I started by saying that the most important verse within the story is that Samson will begin to save Israel. Why is that the most important verse? Because 1,100 years later, Jesus of Nazareth is going to show up. He, like Samson, will be born miraculously. He, too, will have incredible strength. Only he will control weather and demons and disease and ultimately death. But Jesus, like Samson, will be betrayed by someone who acted as a friend. He, like Samson, will be chained and tortured and put on public display to be mocked. He, like Samson, when he pushed the pillars of the temple down, Jesus will die with arms outstretched. And through that death, when it looked like he was defeated, he actually defeated the enemy. But unlike Samson, Jesus was not put in chains for his sin. He was put into chains for ours. Samson was a strong man made weak through his own sin. Jesus was the mighty God who voluntarily became weak to save us from the chains of our sin. That's good news because we are all like Samson. We are all people who have been driven by our lusts, people who compromise, people who are proud, and people who live for ourselves. But Jesus was wounded for that. 
And when you understand that, it changes your life. When you see that Jesus was given for you and when you let His Holy Spirit rush upon you and live inside of you, He infuses into you the fortitude of character that makes you strong where Samson was weak. It's only when you see that He accepted you freely by His grace, even though you lived like Samson, that you are freed from the power of the impulses and security and insecurities that made you weak. We stand in awe of the strength of Samson. And we should stand in awe of the presence of Jesus. I stand amazed at the presence of Jesus the Nazarene who saved me, a sinner condemned unclean. Jesus is the real Samson. And we need to stand amazed knowing that He can enable you to live a life that Samson should have lived. Jesus will help you conquer sin and death and live in a way that you never thought was possible. Come on, somebody. It's the best news in the history of the world. That if you'll trust in Jesus as your Savior, you can have the strength that Samson never had. You can leave with power and lead a life with purpose. Let's pray. God, thank You for this time together. Thank You for this story. God, I pray that it stirred and moved in people's hearts in a way that only You can. Because I know that I included am like Samson. I've done stupid things. I've fallen short. I've been weak even though you promised me strength. And God, I'm just praying right now for every person in this room to be filled with your Holy Spirit. That they can lead a life of purpose and strength and character and not fall into temptation and lust and chase after the things that they want because it leads to a life of destruction. God, I pray that you help each person here realize that you've come so they might have life and have it to the full. That you are after our joy. But most of all, you want to make your name glorified because you're worth it. God, I pray that if there's anybody here this morning who hasn't done what the Bible tells us we need to do, which is repent of our sin, I just want to give you, if that's you this morning, an opportunity to do that to repent of your sin, to be made new, to get the strength that the Bible promises you to overcome these hard things in life. Just say, I'm sorry. I'm sorry I've sinned. But I believe in Jesus. I believe He died for me. And I believe He rose from the dead. And because of that, I have strength. Help me live for you and serve you. God, I'm praying for the others here that haven't completely surrendered their life to you, that they've been living this life of religion and they should have been living a life of surrender. God, help them realize that they too can have strength in your name. Their life can change today and never be the same because of the power of your Holy Spirit. 
I pray a special blessing over each person today. I pray that they will leave today feeling strength, feeling renewed, and living their best life all in Jesus' name. Amen.